Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. And welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, how's everything going? Things are going well, Steve. I'm looking forward to recording today. And uh, not just because I get you, but because I get a wonderful guest. Yes, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a great one. Who's on today, Brad? So today we've got Eric Zimmer, who is the host of the podcast, The One You Feed. It's one of the only podcasts that I regularly listen to. Um, Eric is just so full of insight and wisdom from his own experiences, as well as the hundreds of conversations that he's had with just fascinating guests. As you'll hear throughout the show, Eric overcame a very challenging, challenging is an understatement of the day, addiction to heroin. He got sober, he relapsed into alcohol issues, got sober again, was an extremely successful entrepreneur in the tech startup, and um, made a pivot around the age of 40 to focus more on the internal game, what he calls spiritual habits that you'll hear more about that certainly are a lot like fundamental principles and growth equation talk. And um, his journey is just remarkable. He's full of so much insight. This has quickly become one of my favorite conversations, and we hope that you all love it too. So, Eric, you start your podcast with a parable. And if I'm not mistaken, you ask all your guests to to answer this question as a lead in. So could you share what that parable is for our listeners? Sure. It's, uh, it's an old parable of unknown origin, but it goes something like this. Uh, there's a grandparent who's talking with their grandchild and they say, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One's a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandchild stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at their grandparents and says, well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, the one you feed. So that's the parable that I read to people. And then I say, tell me what that means to you in your life and in the work that you do. And you got a chance to answer that one recently, Brad. So you know kind of how it goes. So now I'm going to turn it around on you. What does that parable mean to you? And why is it such a foundation of how you think about the conversations that you have with others? I'm going to answer the second part of that first, which is um, it's the it's the parable we use to start the podcast uh, eight years ago. It's the anchoring point, right? So if I was starting a podcast today, would I pick a podcast and that would be the way I jump off? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, it, it's worked. Um, and, so, um, and so the way I think about it has grown a little nuanced. But the thing about a good parable is when you hear it, you almost immediately get it, right? Like it, it transcends needing a long explanation, which you might say then why you ask people to explain it all the time. But, um, you know, to me, it just shows that we have choices. And those choices, both in our thoughts and in our actions, determine the quality of our lives. You know, they determine what we get from life. Our choices really do matter. 
So at its most basic level, I think that's what it says. As I get a little bit more nuanced with it, the other thing I like about it is it says we all have these things inside of us, right? And I think it helps normalize the human condition. The fact that I feel greed and hatred and fear and all those different things at points does not mean there's something wrong with me. It doesn't mean I'm broken. It just means I'm a human. It's the way we all are. And the way the parable is phrased, it also makes it sound like it's kind of a close match sometimes, you know, which I also think is is valuable, right? Like it, it just, I think it helps us know that we're okay with that. The reason the parable was originally so important to me is I heard it, you know, for the first time. Oh, probably 25 years ago now, uh, somewhere in some uh, probably church basement in Columbus, Ohio, uh, attending an AA meeting, right, where I was um, newly sober from heroin addiction and uh, had been homeless up to that point. And I was really sick. And when I heard that parable, it just, it just really hit me because I, I got it in that moment. I was like, okay, uh, there is, there, I'm, I'm, I'm presented with a pretty stark choice here. So that's a, so first I want to comment on the parable because, well, I'm going to take you back. When Brad said, Hey, I'm listening to this guy, Eric Zimmer's podcast. You know, you got to give, you got to check this out. I, the first podcast I listened to, I hear the parable and I'm like, Oh, this is brilliant because my background is in sport and running and endurance sports and for the longest time with anybody I've coached, I've always used something similar in the sense that everybody has an angel and a devil on their shoulder, <laughs> you know, yep. and everybody has those like negative thoughts, those negative pulls in sport. It's often pull, it's often pulling you towards like quitting or, you know, slowing down or giving up on your goal or whatever have you in life. It's the things that you talked about, like the greed, anger, all of those things. So I just once once i heard that i'm like i'm in like let's go all the way so i did i just love love that but you know in there you you started to to get at your story which is one filled with addiction like homelessness living you know in a van and i'm just struck by you know you just mentioned there like this parable came got through to you in those moments in that moment while you're going through that is so can maybe you take our audience our listeners back towards what you're going through before you had that like aha moment of oh i have a choice yeah um i mean we've hit some of the big points right i was i was a heroin addict i was uh, i weighed 100 pounds um i had hepatitis c i didn't know it at the time um i was leading an active life of crime, uh, in order to pay for my, my heroin habit. Um, and so I wasn't do, I, I was not doing well, you know, how did I get there is, um, you know, a longer story, but it, it's not that different than probably a lot of people who find themselves in addiction. I started because it made me feel a little bit better and not heroin. I started back with a drink, you know, and it just one thing after the next, after the next, after the next, and there, there I am. You know, um, so I was, um, so that's kind of the, the end of the story is me, not the end of the story. The beginning of the recovery story is me getting arrested. Um, and at that moment I got arrested at work, 
um, and work was where I had the van. I got the van from the owner of the restaurant. So in one fell swoop, I lost my income. Uh, one of the places I, uh, I, I hate to say I took a bunch of money from and my home all in one fell swoop, um, which caused me to go into detox. Um, and I had done this before. This was not my first time trying to give up substances. Matter of fact, I've been trying some form of that for four or five years on and off, you know, different things, knowing that like the way I consumed substances was not normal, you know, that I had a problem. And so, um, but, but that, that arrest sort of threw my life into chaos. And I went to detox primarily because I just didn't know what else to do. I knew I was going to be really dope sick and I didn't know where I was going to get the money. And, um, when I was there, they, there was a moment of what we call clarity, you know, in recovery, we talk about a moment of clarity. I was, uh, talking with them. They said, you need to go to our long-term treatment program. It's 30 days. It's right upstairs. We're going to just send you there when you're detoxed. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And I went back to my room and I was sitting there and I just had a moment where I went, if you don't do this, you're either going to jail for a long time or you're going to die. And I just saw it clearly for a second. And so I went back and I just said, okay, I'll go. And somewhere in that 30-day treatment program became, came the second element that I think is, is core to recovery. The first is you've got to have enough consequence of some sort. You know, things, are, things have to be going poorly enough that you decide to give up your best friend, right? Um, so that's, that's the first element. But the second element that is also really critical is hope. And somewhere in there, I got hope. I, I got a sense like, maybe I can actually do this. You know, maybe I can actually do this. And so it was somewhere probably in that 30-day treatment program, they took us to a meeting. It's probably when I heard that parable, you know. And in that moment, you know, I, it was, it, I just, it had been made clear to me through treatment and all that. Like, here's a series of actions and thought patterns that lead to recovery. And here's the series of actions and thought patterns that lead back to the way you were. And I had gotten clear on that the way I had been living was uh, the, I had about played it out, right? There was, there was nowhere good coming. You know, the good days were gone. How old were you at this time? 24 going into, yeah, yeah, 20, 1994. Yeah, 24. Okay, so two, two follow-on questions there. If you're comfortable uh, speaking about it, what does it feel like to use heroin? <laughs> and the second question is, what does it feel like to detox from heroin in such a stark manner? Well, um, how, how graphic can I be on this show? We are a rated R show, um, and we, we want to capture the whole human experience. So right. um, well, everything is on board. And listeners, you know, be warned that what follows might, uh, for some of you, uh, trigger you and cause certain thoughts and emotions. Um, but it's whatever you're comfortable sharing, Eric. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the joking answer to how heroin feels is it was, I used to describe it as like getting a blowjob from God. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the inappropriate part of that. Right. Um, it, it, it's an amazing feeling, right? I mean, it is a feeling where all of a sudden physically you feel incredible and all of a sudden, mentally, it's like everything that troubled me was just gone. You know, um, 
Now, the problem with any addiction is that that's not what you get over time. That's what you get in the beginning. It's like, you know, if you know, the first time you ever drink a cup of coffee, it's like, bam, you're like, oh my God, right? Well, that's not what happens to most of us when we drink a cup of coffee now, right? We just kind of go back to being normal. And that's what happens with, with any drug. Um, detoxing is a pretty miserable experience. Um, but I don't know that it's as bad as it's sometimes played out to be. It's like having a really bad flu is my my sense of it. But what it what it's accompanied by that makes it so horrific is dis, deep deep despair. And it's what and what is also difficult about it is if unless you're like locked in jail, you know that you could make all this misery go away very easily. You know? And so it's like, you know, imagine being in the deepest despair of your life with like the worst flu you've ever had. And you know, you know, the drugstore is down the street and they've got something that's going to make you feel perfectly normal. It's you're, you want to do it, but you know, you shouldn't do it. And so that's the, you know, the worst part to me is not even withdrawal symptoms. The worst part to me of addiction and recovery is early on, there's this pull. It's like being, it's like the angel and the devil or the good and the bad wolf are really fighting. And one part of you is screaming, I have to do it. And the other part of you is screaming, you can't, you can't. And it's just this inner misery. Um, I often stay sober on simply never wanting to have to feel that way again in my life. I never want to feel that pull again. I never want to feel that torment. Um, because I know I will, right? I mean, I, my experience with substances is, 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 an, is enough for me to go, all right, you know what? I know where this is going to end up. It's going to end up with me having to get sober again. And I just don't want to feel that way. I always say to people who are getting, you know, early on and sober, early on getting sober, I say, you know, getting sober is kind of miserable. Being sober is pretty wonderful, right? You got to, sometimes you just got to hang in there. Sometimes it actually feels worse for a little while before it feels better. So when you're in the midst of that that pull, like how in the world do you navigate that enough to get to a place where you can see that glimmer of hope? It's a long time ago for me. So, well, although I think it's important to say my story, uh, recovery story goes on where I stay sober for about eight years and then I start drinking. And I drink for another, I drink for maybe four years. And I end up having to get sober again, but the circumstances are radically different. I'm living in a a, a very nice house in an upper middle class neighborhood. I'm I, I'm driving a, a really nice car. I've just gotten promoted. I'm making more money than I ever have, right? Uh, but I still find myself having to get sober again, right? It's because the internal experience was was the same. Um, so how do you navigate it when you're in the pool? I mean, if I knew the answer to that then I would be a billionaire, right? If I could just be like, hey, all you got to do is X, Y, and Z, right? I'd be rich beyond measure. The person who solves this question, if they ever do, I don't know that they can, but would be rich beyond measure. I mean, for me, um, I was for, I mean, I really am glad that in those first days that were hardest, the first time around I was in a facility. The second time around I wasn't. I was out on my own and I had a job and a big part of it for me is other people. You know, um, I went to, 
I went to a lot of meetings. You know, I just went to a lot of AA meetings and there's a lot of things about AA that I don't love. I, there's a lot of bones I could pick with it, but it saved my life twice. And, um, and I think the most important part of it was that it gave, it was other people, you know, that's where hope comes from because and I just had this conversation with a coaching client yesterday. I said, the thing we've got to figure out how to do is in those moments, we got to get another voice in your head because you're locked in your head with yourself and you're not going to win that. Your brain is actively your enemy in that moment. You don't have enough of your brain that, that knows how to t turn around. Yeah, it, it's too strong. So we need other voices in there, whether that's talking to other people or listening to things or finding the thing that gets another voice in your head. And I think part of the reason, if not the whole reason that Steve is asking that question is um, both Steve and myself, we like to look at extremes to try to learn. And addiction in that pull is an extreme, but it's the same thing if you are an athlete that is riding the line and everything is telling you to slow down, but you need to hold on. It's being in an argument with your partner and having that feeling of anger bubble up and everything is telling you to say what is going to come out, but you'd be better off not to. It is the same thing in a work situation where you could take the shortcut or do the unethical thing or gossip about a colleague and it's like an itch and you really want to scratch it, but you don't scratch the itch. Uh, old listeners will know, new listeners might not, that the closest thing I've experienced to addiction is obsessive compulsive disorder, which in many ways is like an addiction to a, a way of thinking and a way of needing clarity on everything always. And, um, I worked with a therapist that, that did a lot of work with addiction as well. So she used a, a very addiction based framework. Um, but I've always heard that like the OCD is maybe like 50% of what it's like to have a true substance addiction, which just gives me all the sympathy in the world. Um, if you can go back and then we'll move on from acute 24 coming off of the hard drugs, like, was it just time? Was it? Yeah. Like what stopped you from scratching that itch? Um, and if you don't remember or your brain has selective amnesia, that, that, that tells us everything <laughs> we need to know too. No, I, I, I remember, I mean, um, again, the first, uh, you know, it's interesting cause I look at my two recoveries, the one from heroin at 24 and then the other one from alcohol and marijuana later. And I look at the second one as the far harder one as far as getting recovery, even though you'd think, okay, the heroin one was way, way worse. Um, and maybe in some ways it was, but I was supported in such a way, right? I, I was in treatment for, for 40 days, you know, where all I had to do was get sober. And at the end of the day, all I really had to do is not walk out the door. So, so there was a lot of support there. Um, but I know that, you know, some of the things that, um, you know, some of the things that I did in that, in that time, in both those times was get support from other people. Um, you know, all the examples you just gave brought to mind for me, knowing and keeping sort of in the front of my mind, what matters why it matters. So that's a big thing in, in addiction. We talk a lot about play the tape all the way through. So what happens is the addictive brain just starts to play the tape and it goes, getting high feels great or whatever, you know, however it says that it's, 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 it's more of a, 
internal sort of sensory experience maybe than those words, but it's there. And then the key is to go, okay, keep going, Eric. Keep the, Okay, then what? Oh, yeah, well, then I'm going to, you know, and then what? And then what? And so you, you, you know, you play the tape all the way through. And I think that's, you know, similar to some of the situations you talked about. You know, I'm at work and I've got an ethical uh, quandary. If I just think about what is best for me right this minute, then I'm going to get in trouble, right? But if I can think through, okay, what, okay, then what, then what, then what, and what matters to me? So for me, I got really clear what mattered to me is sobriety. And the reason sobriety mattered is it became for me, it just became clear to me that anything else I wanted in life that was good was, was on the other side of that. Like I just, it, it, it was all there. Um, I think the other thing that was helpful for me was I was given some very clear things to do when I felt like I was in trouble, you know? So a marathoner, right, has got some skills in their bag of like, you know, keep your eye on the next lamppost and just run to that, right? You've got, a, you've got some skills in your bag, right? In recovery, we get some skills in our bag, right? And, you know, a, a big one is is just, don't do it now. You know, we, we talk about 24 hours, you know, 24 hours, uh, at a time, one day at a time. Right. But in addiction, sometimes that boils down to one hour at a time, 10 minutes at a time. Just don't do it now, Eric, just wait 10 minutes, just wait 10 minutes, you know, just get through. And you hope that by getting, you know, an hour from now, something's going to shift. So those are a few of the, the, the tools that are, that are there. Um, and again, the one that I, with addiction, I can't stress enough is, is other people, you know, having other people to talk to. I'm not saying you have to go to AA. That's not what I'm saying at all. Although AA is a convenient and easy or NA they're convenient and easy and there's lots of them and they're free. So they're, they're very, very beneficial in that way, but there's lots of other modalities, but I just can't imagine going through the difficulty of sobriety, um, by myself. I just, I don't think I would have made it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, it, it reminds me of something, um, a good friend and colleague, Alan St. Clair Gibson, who's a exercise scientist, neuroscientist, um, told me the voices in your head are the people who you interact with. So if you like want more voices in your head, that are positive and, you know, pushing you down the right path, make sure your mentors, colleagues, support group, et cetera, are, are like contributing so that in the moment of depth and despair, those voices pop in. Oh, that's so brilliant. I, I, I love that. That's, that's really good. You know, that's really good. And I think it's, yeah, that's, that's spot on. Yeah. And your, your talk on support, their comments on support just reminded me that. So having gone through that and seeing how clear support is, I know we've been talking about, you know, decades ago, but how do you cultivate support and community now, understanding the the vast importance of it in life? Well, I'm at a, I'm at a stage in life where I'm, I am, older. So I have some amount of support that I've just cultivated over the years. It's kind of just, you know, legacy support. It's just kind of there, right? Friendships and, and different things. I'm also fortunate in that, uh, you know, I, I have a podcast that has allowed me to, uh, 
meet mentors and as well as just build a community of people who love the show and love the work we're doing. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, community that I get there and I'm, and I tend to be the sort of person that's not, even though I do, I act as a teacher role in that community. Often I also use, you know, I don't think that I'm above needing support from anyone. Right. And so, you know, I think that community provides support. So those are the, probably the primary ways. Um, but you know, I, um, I'm, I'm a little lapsed right now, but I practiced in a Zen Buddhist community for a couple of years recently. You know, there was, you've got the, the group of people there. Um, I have a, I have a spiritual director. I have a coach. I have, I mean, so I have a variety of, you know, I even have, so I, I listed the sort of organic support, but I, I pay people for some support also, cause I find it really valuable. How old are you now, Eric? I am 51. So walk us through the period of time after your first sobriety, you mentioned upper middle class, nice house, nice car. This is pre-podcast boom. So I'm assuming it's pre-your podcast interest. Oh, yeah. What happened between Eric, the person experiencing addiction, and the wildly successful, thoughtful podcast host, coach, and writer? Well... Um, so I got, you know, just to give the full chronology, I got sober 24, stayed sober about eight years. In that period, I started building a career. I got into the software startup industry, uh, completely by, by luck. Um, and, um, so I started building a career and then I went out and I, I drank again for four or five years, but I was able to keep my career trajectory going upwards at that point. And it's um, all in, it's all in tech. All in tech. Software. All where, in tech. Where are you located point. at the time? Uh, Columbus, Ohio. Okay. So I, it was this crazy thing in 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 1995 in Columbus, Ohio. There was a startup called SubmitOrder.com, and um, it was basically you know the 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 first dot com boom was happening, and all these retailers are rushing to go online, but they have no logistical support for shipping single packages. All they know how to do is ship a truckload of things to a store. So we became that logistical back end. And we got uh, $150 million in VC money, which in Columbus, Ohio in the mid-90s was unheard of. Um, and I found myself, you know, within a couple of years of being a homeless heroin addict, sitting in venture capital meetings with some of the biggest firms on in Silicon Valley. It was just bizarre. You know, it's bizarre being there and they're talking about their the castle they're renting for holiday. And I'm, you know, thinking about the shitty AA meeting I'm going to, you know, later that night. It was just, it was bizarre. So that, that opportunity was just, um, I launched my career in a way I, I couldn't have imagined. So I was in tech. And then after I got sober the second time, still in tech, still with a software startup, but I started to get a little bit of an itch to do something else. And so um, I founded a solar energy company, um, which started out going very well, but then a bunch of laws changed in Ohio, um, you know, that were related to promoting renewable energy. Those, those laws went away and, and, you know, after about the, I think it was the third time we had about $15 million in signed contracts evaporate because of a, a legislative thing. I just was like, I can't climb this hill again. Um, and so I shut the company down 
and went, you know, I was back now doing uh, software related work, um, you know, decent, getting paid well, decent career, interesting. But it was then that the podcast idea sort of came to me. Um, I had decided what I was going to do was build, uh, I was going to create an online course for how to develop really large solar energy projects projects because that was an expertise I sort of had. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't one that a lot of people had at that point. And as I was doing that, I got introduced to podcasts because I was thinking like, well, how, okay, if I create this, how's anybody going to know about it? And then oh, I started finding podcasts. And anyway, I eventually decided not to do that program. Um, I think my heart was too broken by solar at that time. And, um, but somewhere in there, the idea for the podcast just kind of came to me fully formed. Like I could start a podcast. I could interview people whose books I'm reading anyway. I could call it the one you feed, base it on this parable. And, um, and I started doing it. My best friend, Chris is an audio engineer. I asked him if he wanted to do it, but it was really not, it was not a career move, right? It, I was in no way like, Oh, I'm going to, I just was like, this sounds like it would be really awesome to do. So that's kind of how that started. And then over the years, it's just grown and built and and I you know began doing coaching work as part of that you know we started creating these uh, spiritual habits programs I became a certified interface spiritual director so it all you know things sort of built through that process all right there are so many threads to pull on here um, sorry for the long answer it's great we're gonna pull <laughs> on all of them and we're taking notes so the first point in observation that I wanted to make is um, your experience immediately out of sobriety really mirrors a lot of the research that we came across for our second book, The Passion Paradox, which showed that the same traits that lead people to lives of addiction and crime are quite beneficial for <laughs> entrepreneurship Yep, because it's intuitiveness, it's thinking on your feet, uh, it's problem solving, it's the ability to grind and it is having a goal and doing everything possible to achieve that goal. In the case of someone suffering from addiction, it's getting your next fix. And in the case of an entrepreneur, it's building the company. Um, and, and that was just such fascinating work. And there's a researcher, forgetting her name because we wrote this book almost four years ago now, but she basically was trying to identify at-risk youth for addiction yep. and crime and then train them to be entrepreneurs. Um, so it was just super interesting hearing that. And um, of course, it's very easy when you're on the other side of something like addiction to be like, oh, yeah, I learned so much. It helped me. But I'm sure some of that was going on in your your very quick rise in entrepreneurship. I, yeah, I think so. And it's interesting uh, because when I was in my teenage years, um, I started using substances and I use them in a very strange way and, and we were problematic. And around the same time, I started a nonprofit uh, program where we tutored disadvantaged children. Um, so entrepreneurship type thing as a high schooler and instantly all that stuff went away, right? Instantly all my sort of my, 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 my crime desires, my addiction, all of it went away because I suddenly had found something really positive to, to channel it into. So I think it's absolutely true. I do think there are, you know, um, a lot of skills that you can harvest from, from addiction. You know, if you can get on the other side of it, it does, it does, you know, I do think it, it teaches a lot of interesting things. 
So one thing that comes to mind when you, you're telling your story there is that that moment when you're meeting with, you know, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, et cetera, et cetera, just after a couple of years of going through um, or being sober is, you know, what's very clear in your work is like this clarity on who you are and what matters. Like, how do you keep that when you're now in this place where it's like, oh, this is what matters. This is who I am. I've gotten sober, like, but I'm still going to these AA meetings and you're faced with all these guys like with, you know, yachts and, and what have you. Like, I can see where that could pull you towards like distortion again. Yeah, it's interesting to say that there's not, that there aren't pulls in there would be to misstate it. And I think to say that being clear about values and what I wanted and who I was doesn't mean that there's not, even if that's what appears on the surface, doesn't mean there's not moments internally where it doesn't feel clear. Right. And I think that's really important to say is that like you can have, you know, um, quote unquote clarity about your goals and values and still have some wrestling around that. Right. You know, it's, being around people like that in Silicon Valley is, is, you know, has its, um, has its pull. And so I, you know, I did lose myself at points in work. You know, I did lose myself at points in entrepreneurship. Um, I was early enough. I mean, and that's part of why I eventually, I think part of why I drank again, you know? Um, but, but early on, I was so clear and I was getting so much out of recovery. Like recovery was just it just kept blowing my mind with like insights and things I was learning about myself and the human condition. And it was so rich and the growth I was internal growth I was having was so dramatic that it really was, you know, it, it was, it was very compelling in the same, you know, entrepreneurship was compelling and my work was compelling, but so was recovery. You know, um, I think it was harder as recovery sort of leveled out and I was like, okay, now I'm more kind of just, yeah, I know what this is about. Then, the, then the other pulls started, you know, and, and it was, it, you know, it was other, other quote unquote, you know, mini addictions that eventually led me back off the course. So, um, I don't know. I, that was a partial answer to your question, I hope. No, that gets at it. And I'm so I'm curious. I'm curious as well. So the recovery part, obviously, incredibly important. And you also mentioned, you know, spiritual habits. So I'm I'm curious on what a how you would define like spiritual habits and then b what role like spirituality played in your kind of recovery as well. Yeah. Again, sorry, this is going to be a, it's going to take me a minute to get to the the punchline on this one. But so when I got sober the first time in 1994 in central Ohio in AA, it was about God. AA talks about God. It talks about higher powers. It's very clear. And th in those days, it was an interventionist God who came in and did things in your life, sort of the, the traditional Christian God that we think of. And I so desperate that I went, okay, I'll believe anything. Fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. And I, and I, I did everything I could to believe that, but I was faking it to a certain degree. 
And when something really bad happened in my personal life, my spiritual belief system collapsed. And again, that was another part of what led me back out to drink. So when I came back to AA a second time, knowing what AA was going to ask of me, I went, all right, I need to really think about this higher power thing and this God thing. Like, What does this mean to me that I can really believe in? And where I landed on was that I believed that there were certain principles. We could call them spiritual principles. We could call them philosophical principles. You could probably even call them psychological principles, right? The, the overlap is, is, is there's a lot of overlap, right? Brad, you've explored this in your book a ton, right? Um, but that there were these principles. And if I oriented my life by those principles, what I believed was I could A, stay sober, and B, handle whatever life brought my way. So, so for me then, um, that became sort of the building block, and it's sort of what led to spiritual habits. And I have debated the name spiritual habits a bunch of times. You know, I really have. I've, I've debated whether that's the right name. Um, because to me, spirituality simply is connecting with the things that matter the most right? Connecting with the things that matter the most. And so spiritual is a term that resonates with a lot of people. Um, my primary philosophical slash religious tradition has been informed by Buddhism. And so the word spiritual kind of comes in there. Um, there's something about the word that appeals to me. I've had some experiences of transcendence that I think, even though the philosophical liter or I'm sorry, the, the psychological literature on flow states and different things is starting to catch up on for a long, long time. That that sort of transcendent experience was in the realm of spirituality. So I think that's where I landed kind of on those terms. Spiritual habits then is simply taking these basic foundational principles that I think we would all agree with and and go, yep, you should do that. And then taking what we know about behavior change science and saying, how can I live those principles more in all the moments of my life? That's the goal of spiritual habits was to try and solve the, what I, you know, the knowing doing gap, which I think Brad, you also, I think Brad, you also talk about that. If I recall, you know, that knowing doing gap. Yeah, it's really hard. So can you share a couple of those principles? Sure. Um, the ones that, let's say the ones that you have personally found most helpful to you yep. and it can just be a handful. And then also those that you find that your clients, listeners of your show, um, either take for granted or commonly overlook. You know, I think the, the one principle that I, I could pick any of them, depending on my mood and the day, uh, today I'll pick, um, you know, I call the lesson, allow everything to be exactly the way it is, but acceptance is another term for it. Right. And, you know, it, it's, this wisdom shows up over and over, right. It's in the Stoics with Epictetus. It is in, uh, the serenity prayer. It, I mean, it's all over the place, right? Like uh, Stephen Covey's circle of concern versus circle of influence. I mean, it, it, what can I control? What can I control and putting my energy on the things that I can, but there is an equation that uh, uh, a meditation teacher, Shinzen Young, once said, and he said that suffering equals pain times resistance. And when I heard that, it kind of like, it was one of those internal moments of like, all right, he just articulated in a sentence something that would take me four paragraphs to articulate. 
but what I realized then is I started really looking in my life, where are all the places that I resist? And it's a lot. You know, I don't want, you know, I got a call later this afternoon. I don't want to. You know, oh, I got to go do this thing next week. I don't want, there's, there's a lot of this resistance. I don't want it to be this way. I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to. And to the extent that we can just turn that down, I don't think we're going to get rid of it, but to the extent we can turn it down is an extent that we suffer way less. You know, it's, it's, it's a principle that um, goes from lessening suffering a little bit to in certain experiences in my life, um, leading to something that sure seemed a lot like enlightenment, right? By just taking my hands off the controls of experience and just truly like, all right, I'm not going to try and change this moment in any way. I'm not going to change how I'm thinking about it. I'm not going to change how I'm perceiving it. I'm just going to completely let it be is deeply transformational and really hard to do. If I knew how to do it, I would just do it all the time because it, it really has, you know, when I've been able to get all the way there, it's been unbelievable. But the thing I love about it is you don't even have to take it that far. Every little bit that you lessen, that's why I love that equation that, that he gave, right? Because if I've got, let's say my back hurts on a pain level of three units of pain and I'm resisting it to a level of three, I've got nine points of total suffering. If I turn that resistance down even a notch, I've got six points of total suffering and I didn't do anything about the back pain, which I'm, by the way, may not be able to do anything about anyway. So it's really profound. Oh man, I love that. What, what comes to mind though is, is ex how do you, it's like acceptance I think in the modern world or letting go or stepping back and sitting with something is even is so difficult. Like, so maybe the question from, for this is in your own pursuits where you have a podcast that's listened to by millions of people and you have like successful coaching business and all this stuff, how do you balance that? like acceptance and like ability to just sit with it and let go versus like these desires to like, Oh, I'm successful. Oh, I need mm -hmm. to like promote this to do this, et cetera. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, 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 the Stoics Epictetus talks about this really well. He calls it, he talks about the dichotomy of control. Right. And so, and, and what you, what you try and do is you tweeze apart. So let's take what we just talked about, uh, a successful podcast, tweeze apart what parts of that I can control and what parts I can't. And the parts I can control is the work that I do. So I don't think that, so what I, and, and if I can, so I do the work that I can do. And then when I, my brain turns, which it inevitably does to the success metrics, I try and just, it's, it's a constant, you know, turn it back to, am I doing the best I can? You know, am I doing what I can do? And if I am, then I try and have that be good enough. And so, you know, and then I also, also redirect back to what matters. 
you know, what matters? Like, why did I, why did I start this podcast? Why do I keep doing it? I mean, part of it is because at this point it pays the bills. So sure, that's in there. Um, are there egoic tendencies in it? Of course, they, you know, like I'm, they show up, you know, but there, there's a lot of love in it too, right? You know, I started it because I wanted to talk to these people and I love these kind of conversations. I still do. So can I orient around that? Can I orient, orient around the fact that I know it helps people? You know, does it have to help a billion people, a million people, a thousand people, one person? What's the, what's the right amount? What's enough there? And so I just go, you know what? It's something that I think I know because I hear from people makes the world a, a little bit better of a place. So I try and reorient more and more towards the things that I can control and the metrics that line up with my deeper values. Uh, knowing that inevitably I get just, you know, we all get our eyes distracted by the vanity things, but, you know, try and come back. You are such a kindred spirit. Um, it's certainly how we think about our own endeavors and particularly with ego, um, accepting that it's okay for ego to be a part of it, not trying to totally get rid of that or completely repress it or resist it, right? Because that's just going to cause more suffering but also being in relationship with it where hopefully most of the time it's a minority force, not a majority force. And um, one little story about your podcast in particular, you said help one person while well, you've got evidence here, is when I was in the thick of OCD, I listened to your episode with Dr. Judson Brewer. And it was right after his first book, The Craving Mind, came out. And that episode just completely blew my mind. And we had already written Peak Performance. So I said, you know, hey, maybe there's a chance that Judd will answer an email from me. So I emailed Judson explaining a little bit about my situation and having listened to your podcast. And for five years now, Judson Brewer has been my meditation coach. That's awesome. And I would have never heard of him had I not listened <laughs> to your podcast. And That's great. the impact on my life. So it like it does have that very real concrete um, impact. So, so thank you. I want to pivot for just a little bit because there's this other fascinating journey that you've been on. So we've talked a lot about recovery and addiction, which really is just an extreme version of changing your behavior, or doing something that is very hard when a huge part of your mind body system says scratch the itch and you have to learn how not to. I think a lot of people are also going to be really fascinated. How do you, at age 42, 43, start a podcast? Because so many people think, oh, I'm in this corporate job or I, I work this nine to five. And, you know, Brad and Steve, they got into it. They were younger, but Eric's, he's in his 50s and he's doing this. And, and he started kind of late. Um, again, for listeners, y'all should know if you read Groundedness, but the research actually shows that the best age to launch something new is 45. That is just empirical evidence. And that's simply because you have so much experience from failing and, and hard-won wisdom. And yet, it's still hard to wrap our heads around. So can you walk us through that transition just a little bit? Like, I'm curious, did you have um, exit money from one of your startups that gave you a cushion? Like, really pragmatically, how do you shift into doing this very creative, wholesome work? Yeah, uh I love that section of your book, by the way, the, the old man in me celebrated that. Um, so 
No, I did not have uh, cushion money. The first four and a half years that I did the podcast in the coaching business, I also worked uh, a full-time job as a, an executive director in a large corporation and, you know, doing software work. So, um, you know, I think we are, one of the other principles in the program is the middle way. I'm a big middle way guy. And I think we are presented with a, a lot of false dichotomies sometimes, right? It's this or that. And so let's say you're like, I want to start this creative thing. Well, the this or that mindset is either I quit my job and I do this thing full time or I can't do it. And that's where most of us get stuck. And so in my case, I just realized like neither of those options works for me. I, I mean, I won't say I couldn't quit my job because I think, of course I could. There's no law that stops me from not quitting my job. But given my family circumstances and the responsibilities that I had and a variety of different things, that wasn't something I was willing to do at that point. So that was not an option I was going to take. And the option of just not, not doing something that I wanted to do also felt like it, I wasn't okay with that either. So I was left with, okay, how do I do both these things? And, um, so that's what I did. You know, I, I worked this, uh, this job and I did the podcast. Now I'm going to, I'm going to give a couple qualifications. My age helped there and the way that it helped, it, it, it hurts and helps, right? The way that it helps is my kids were older. I would not have been able to do that in the same way with a five-year-old. Right. Or again, not, I won't, I won't say I couldn't have, I wouldn't have made those same choices about how I allocated my time. But my, my, my son and stepson were teenagers, right? They didn't want anything to do with me anyway. Right. So besides driving them around, I didn't have much to do. Um, so the way it doesn't help is I didn't have the energy I had at 25 or 30. Um, but that was my, that was my, my path forward. And then eventually there came a time where the podcast was making money. The coaching business was making money. And I looked at it wasn't making as I mean, certainly nowhere near as much as I was making in my, you know, well-paid, cushy corporate job. I was finally at that stage in my career where people were just starting to throw what seemed to me stupid amounts of money at me. Um, but I saw, but I was, I, I was like, okay, I see a path to being able to do this full time. And I, I, the only way I'm going to get to that next place is now I need to make a jump. And so, yeah, I, you know, I had a, I had some money, not a crazy amount of money, but I, I, I was like, all right, I've got like, you know, three months of operating expenses, living expenses. I've got income coming in. Now I'm going to make a jump, but the jump feels, uh, reasonable to me. You know, I, I think the younger you are, the more appetite for risk you have for a variety of different reasons, you know? Um, so at my age, you know, your appetite for risk is less. I had a son who was starting college, you know, and I had agreed that I was going to pay for his tuition, you know? So I still had, I still had obligations, but it was much more of an educated, uh, jump at that point. So for me, it's really, um, you know, it just, how do I do both? You know, I love that because it, it matches up perfectly with the research, what we wrote about again in Passion Paradox is often we have this idea that like, oh, we've got to go all in right away. Like that's what you do to achieve success. Uh, 
but research your story like it all backs up like more successful startups or whatever endeavors often go gradually until they get to that point where it's like okay it's time so yeah i I, think it depends what you're after and why you're doing it right i was starting the podcast not because it was going to be my next career it was something i really wanted to do and so you know it's harder if it's like i'm starting this thing because I want it to make me money and, you know, like I had a passion or at least a deep interest. I'm, I'm always wary of the word, word passion a little bit. Um, but, but I had a deep interest. And so like, I realized like, I'm going to do this for a while, whether, whether I make any money or not, that makes it a lot easier to do, you know? But I I think paradoxically, paradoxically, excuse me, and important for listeners that even if you did want to make it your career, the path that you took still gives you the best chance because if you do go all in right away, and and this is the mechanism behind that research finding that Steve mentioned, you end up taking less risks because if you quit your job, you need to pay rent. And if paying rent 10 years ago meant publishing Buzzfeed listicles on your podcast every week, because that's what got sponsorship dollars, that's what you would have done. You probably wouldn't have been as happy. Your podcast certainly wouldn't have done as well. Because you had that cushion, you were able to build something unique and special. So even if you do think, even if you're listening and you're younger, you're 25, 26, and you're like, you know, I want to get off this track and get into the other one and make a career change, and you knowingly have that aspiration, it's still something like 66% more likely five years later that you'll be happy if you do it gradually. Uh, The writer Nassim Taleb calls this the barbell effect. And it's not as clever as the, the pain times resistance equals suffering, but it's up there. He says, you want to be an accountant on one side of the barbell and a rock star on the other. And that gives you the best chance of being a full on rock star because you don't have to conform if you've got that, that safety net. Absolutely. I mean, I, I watched a lot of people early on in the, in the podcast boom, um, peers of mine quitting jobs and starting podcasts. And they were running around worrying about monetizing their podcast and making decisions based on that. And I was solely focused on making the best podcast I could make. I I did not have to make any compromises at that stage, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think it it gives you a lot more freedom to really pursue the, the correct vision when you don't need as much money or need money from it in the same way. Yeah, I mean, it, it. what keeps coming back to my head as you're telling the story is you're assist, essentially making yourself resistant or at least more resistant to those pulls, right? The negative voices, the bad wolf, the like success that pulls you towards something or the, the money financial, you know, need to pull you towards the BuzzFeed articles. And, and honestly, in this conversation, it seems like most of your life like your principles are set around like giving yourself this freedom so that you're not like subject to like this passive pulling of these, these things. Freedom is a big value of mine. And I don't mean it in the like flag waving patriotic sense, although I am a, am a fan of freedom in that way too. I am, but I more mean, yeah, what you're saying, which is some degree of, you know, uh, inner freedom, 
You know, I mean, I, I was never more enslaved than I was as an addict. I mean, there is no freedom in that, you know? Um, and so, yeah, learning to, to find some degree of ability to, to be free is really important to me. And it's, it, it's what animates a lot of my spiritual pursuit. Um, early on in AA, there was a line that I read, it was in, in the big book and it, just blew my mind and it is I have been oriented towards it ever since and it basically said um it talked about the bondage of self and it you know another word for it is you know another way they said it is self selfishness self-centeredness that we think is the root of our problem and what I realized then was this constant thinking about how am I feeling how am I doing what's good for me just makes me makes me sick and so what I'm looking for is what, what are all the ways to get free of that? Because, you know, up to and including, you know, complete, complete egoic, tran you know, transcendence at points. Um, because for me, that's where I've noticed, I know where my, I know where my greatest imprisoner is, right? It's, it's right here in my brain, you know, it's, it's an internal, he, he lives in there, you know, and so I'm seeking that freedom. So. I have a big question that's going to hopefully lead us into some concrete daily practices and habits that you use, but maybe not. So the big question is you're talking a lot about freedom with a capital F, I'll say, and you certainly have a presence about you, the way that you speak, that is very Zen-like and effusive and collected yet you live in the modern world you're on twitter you've got people pitching you podcast sponsorships i'm sure you can't help but visit the new york times or wall street journal or whatever it is a couple times a week how do you hold all the spiritual grounding um principles that make you tick in a world that can be so overwhelming just to exist in, let alone to be someone with skin in the game in the conversation? You're right. That's a big question. Um, I think there's a, 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 a bunch of answers to that. One is, you know, I started doing this stuff 25 years ago. You know, I, at 25, I'm recovering from, from addiction in a program that is a spiritual program that, you know, so I've got 25 years of, of working on and thinking about these things. So, you know, just, there's a lot of reps in there, you know, so that's part of the answer. Honestly, I think getting older has helped, you know, I think getting older has its, has its pluses, um, as far in the wisdom, uh, wisdom category. You know, I never know like how much, how much credit should I give myself for this? You know, is it, is it that I'm really getting wiser? Or is it just that I'm mellowing out as I get older, you know? Um, but from there then, yeah, you know, it is about specific daily practice for me. You know, it is about that, you know, okay, it's great to know all these things. How do I actually do them? Right. And so some of the tools, you know, that have been really helpful over the years and some of the tools that are still currently helpful. And I don't do all these all the time. Um, although I have, you know, I have three core practices that I try and do every single day. 
One is I try and move my body in some way. Um, and you know what that is varies, but there's always an element of movement. I try and spend some time in quiet every day, some type of meditation or breathing or just some contemplative practice of some sort. And I try and play my guitar every day. So those are my core practices that I would say it took me years to kind of get those really solidified to the point that they were, I could say they happen nearly every day, but they do happen nearly every day at this point. Um, some other practices that are really helpful. I mean, reading is another one for me. I, I read for my, my job now, right? I I'm, I'm blessed that that's what I get to do. You know, I mean, I, my, you know, I, my job is to pick up Brad's book and read it, right? I loved it, right? So um, reading is another one for me, keeping these sort of ideas fresh in my mind, keeping them there. Because if I don't, sort of to the point we made earlier, your environment shapes who you are to a large extent, you know? Uh, you know, Steve, you talked about the people you're around are the voices that are in your head. Well, so I'm, I'm wanting to put voices in my head for my reading that are good voices to have in there. So that I would say that's probably another core practice that if I wasn't doing it for a career, I would still be doing it because it's, it's important. Um, reflection. For a long time in AA, there's a, something in AA called the 10th step. Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So it basically means you know, we were trained, look every day at the end of your day, look back over your day, look at what you did well, look at what you did poorly. If you, if you really screwed something up and you owe somebody an apology or there's something that needs fixed, go fix it. So that was a really hugely important practice. I don't do it so much anymore because I feel like a lot of years of doing it, it happens more in real time for me now. I know pretty quickly, like, ah, I just, you know, I just screwed up there, you know, like, oh boy, I'm, you know, um, and so a lot of practices that, you know, journaling, thinking back on my emotional states, my mood states, those things, doing them over and over, they start to become something that happens more real time. Um, but I think those are two really transformative practices is, you know, examining and reflecting what's going on in here. You know, that that's in the spiritual habits program, we talk about there are different types of triggers for behavior. The ultimate trigger, if we can learn to harness it, is what I would call an emotional based or an awareness based trigger. It means I know what's happening in my brain, in my heart, in something like real time. And when I recognize that there's a challenge, I go, oh, look what's happening. And then I have some skills for how I deal with it. You know, before that, we need reminders. We need lots of different things. But when we can get more of that, then that's for me like where, where you know, transformation starts to become easier. So hopefully that's a, an answer. Yeah, no, that was a great answer. I love that. I'm taking notes over here. One thing I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you is I've noticed in your work you have um, consistently like interesting idea on on like this kind of interplay between thoughts, feelings, and actions. And often we kind of get it wrong and we think we have to believe, you know, force the believe the belief and then the action follows. But can you maybe talk about the power of like flipping that on its head a little bit? 
Yeah, I am totally fascinated by the interaction between thought, feeling, and behavior. Um, and I would even say maybe, you know, belief in there, which I guess is a type of thought. But um, yeah, totally fascinated by it. Um, but the thing you're talking about is I, another I got from AA. Someone said in AA, they used to say, um, sometimes you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. And that was hugely important because in the beginning, you know, and at certain points, all I wanted to do was do drugs. <laughs> like I can't, you know, my thoughts are not, you know, my brain is not like, you know, I really want to go to an AA meeting today. That sounds really awesome. You know, I'll take the bus and it'll be crappy and I'll go sit in this smoky room and no, you know, so it's the, you know, I was just, I was really taught like do these things and you'll get sober. And so I just, that was my, I just tried really hard. Just do these things. Now, I don't think that's the way all of life is. And I don't think we want to become robotic or automons. And there were, there were elements of healing that were not, that, that needed to go well beyond that. But it was a pretty good place to start. And it, I fall back on it a lot. Like, you know, I have depressive tendencies and, um, you know, depression, as I say, I mean, I didn't make this up, but it's my favorite, one of my favorite phrase, depression hates a moving target. And so if I try and think about whether I want to move when I'm depressed or ask myself, do I feel like moving? Of course not. No, I don't. But I just try and move. Now, I do want to say that that is, that is a great way to approach things. And there are people who have um, depression and other psychiatric disorders that are severe enough that it's not that simple. It's not just get up off the couch, buddy, and you'll feel fine. Like, so I don't want to minimize deep suffering, but there is an element of, I have to take the action that I know will lead to me having a chance to feel better. Um, that is, that is hugely fundamental. And, you know, I all, every time I move my body, it's very rare beforehand that I really want to. I mean, it's not, my resistance is pretty minor these days, you know, but I'm always happy I did, always. I always feel better, you know? So um, for me, I just interviewed a, a, a woman, this, I don't know, um, this is right up your guy's alley. The book is called Move. And um, I'm not sure I remember the author's name, but she goes deep into the, um, she goes deep into the science of why, um, movement helps us, uh, mentally to the, to the main degree. So it's a, it's a deep dive into this idea of that, you know, uh, the, the brain and the body, uh, are deeply influential on each other. And one of the best ways to get better brain health is to move your body and all the different types of movement and what they tend to do. And it was a really good book. Caroline Williams was her name. Yeah. Fascinating. So I'll definitely have to check that out. Um, so you mentioned something in there that I just want to pull on just slightly is that, you know, Brad suffers from OCD. I've had OCD since I was a child. And one of the things you quickly have to like realize, or you kind of are forced to realize is that, often your thoughts like have no meaning or they aren't who you are. Right. 
And you mentioned in there, like you had to like realize not to listen to your thoughts. So I know you talked about like moving first or action first, but I'd love if again, briefly, you could kind of go into like, how do you, how do you deal with that realization? Because I think so many people struggle of like, oh, I thought this, I'm thinking this, I must be X, Y, and Z. Yep. Yep. Meditation is a really helpful tool for this and not in the, not necessarily in the way most people think it is. The, 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 the big insight of meditation, I think, if you pay attention, is that you're not authoring any of those thoughts. <laughs> you're actively trying not to have them, and yet they just keep coming. And it's a real moment, if you, if you look deeply into it, where you can start to go, wait, no, I guess I'm not my thoughts. Like they're just happening. It's, I've been leading people through meditation lately where we start and we go, all right, let's pay attention to the breath. And we pay attention to the breath. Now let's pay attention to sensations in the body and we see them come and go. Now let's listen to sounds. Notice how sounds just come and go by themselves. Now let's do the same thing with thought and realize that it just happens on its own in the same way that sound happens on its own. It appears, it's there in consciousness for a little while, it fades away. And so, um, but obviously we are very attached to thoughts and thoughts drive emotion in a, in a different way than a sound does. Although if you, if you're wired up, like I do, a sound can (laughs) drive strong emotion, particularly gas powered leaf blowers. Um, but yeah, I think recognizing thought, I think what's hard about thought is a couple things. One is all thoughts talk in the same voice. They all sound the same, whether it's the good wolf, the bad wolf, the angel, the devil, it's all my sort of interior voice. It's not like one of them sounds like, you know, Eeyore, unless I make him sound like Eeyore, which I often do. Um, That's problem one. Problem two is that the more strongly we feel something, the more we feel it must be true. And that's actually the opposite of how we might want to interpret it. That extra strong feeling is is very often a sign that what I'm dealing with is an inflamed situation that's caused by some conditioning from the past, and I want to be extra suspicious of something the, the more strongly I believe it. But that's, I think, part of what makes it hard is um, th- those two reasons. But yeah, I mean, I over and over, I'm working to find some way to work with thoughts more skillfully. One more um, bit of a non sequitur question, but it it popped into my mind as a young father, both my, well, I'm relatively young, but my son's definitely young. Um, What's it like having, you said you have a son and a stepson, so I'm going to go ahead and say two kids out in the world who are older and you have this public persona. Um, my sense is that you probably don't have too much of a gap between public persona and who you really are. Your story is out there. Um, most people probably look at you as like the cool, calm Zen master. Presumably that's not always what your kids see. How have you balanced, um, (laughs) the podcast growth and kind of being someone that is out there while at the same time having these, these two kids, you know, uh, 
they seem profoundly uninterested in uh, in the fact that I have a podcast and they could listen to all my stories and all that. I just don't think that they much. I mean, you know, my my son, uh, you know, I know one of his good friends is a girl and she loves the podcast and she listens to it a lot. I, I doubt he ever really listens to it. But I do remember I gave a TEDx talk. I don't know. Let's say five years ago. Um. Maybe it was even more than that. I don't know. But it was the first time I started it off with a very clear sort of story about my addiction. And I talked more about my addiction in it. And the, and the kids were in the audience. And I remember being a little nervous about it. They knew. That, I mean, I had been open from a very early age that I had substance abuse problems. And primarily from a like, hey, you, want, you, you, know, you might want to just be really careful when you start to experiment with that stuff that like your reaction may not be like your peers. Um, but I remember that was the first time I like really sort of got into some of the details of that story in front of them. And I, I, I felt a little bit of nervousness, but broadly speaking, I, I don't think they're, they're, uh, they pay too much attention and they're adults at this point. Like I, I don't, I don't feel much need to keep any part of me secret. Um, you know, I think a lot of that, and I never really have. I have always had a fairly transparent me personally and me professionally. Um, I, you know, I, I've gone through different phases of that in my professional career when I had a corporate job, like how open I was or, you know, a startup job, how open I was about some of those things and how open I wasn't. I had varying degrees, but I was never, um, it was never very far from, the the surface you know i've just always kind of been like you know here it is um i don't know why it's just been there love it so before we wrap up i want to give the listeners a chance who are you know listening this and saying this sounds fascinating your podcast sounds interesting what what podcast recent podcast would you point listeners to that said hey like this, this is one, these are a couple that like were incredibly impactful for me or great conversations that others might get some value out of. Well, there's only one answer for that, I think, right? It's, it's, it's Brad Stolberg. They've heard me, I mean, they've how, heard, they've heard me enough. So how, how can I, <laughs> how can I give any other answer? All right. Uh, after Brad and Brad's a pretty recent one, everybody, you know, early March. So it's out there. No, um, no, no. They've heard enough of me, I think, but, um, yeah, yeah I, please be serious. Like what, yeah. you know, I'm sure our listeners are going to go over to the one you feed where, where ought they start? So I think um, we had a conversation with a gentleman by the name of Johan Hari, who's written a book uh, called Stolen Attention. He's written several other books. I think he's brilliant. Um, I, he's, it's our third time on the show, so I feel like him and I have a, a rapport at this point. That felt like a good one. Um, we re-released around the new year a two-part conversation with James Clear, Atomic Habits. That's a great one. Um Ethan Cross is a uh, wrote a book called Chatter about you know talking about the thoughts in our brain. I think th thought that was a great conversation, um, and um, let's see. I had another uh, conversation with um, 
I'm trying to find, I'm trying to get a little bit of um, a great conversation about workplace burnout with Leah Weiss. Um, so those are, those are a few to, to point people towards. If you're interested in sobriety and addiction, if those issues have resonated, I had a conversation with Veronica Valley recently, which was really great. Catherine Gray, those are both sobriety related conversations. And those are two uh, incredibly smart and, and, and fun women. So those are, those are some. Thanks. We'll, uh, we'll throw those episodes of the one you feed into the show notes. So listeners, if you didn't write them all down and you're driving, I hope you're not writing things down. Um, <laughs> they'll be there. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you feel like we didn't touch upon, um, that would be useful to share? That was a pretty wide ranging conversation. I'm not sure I can think of anything that we did not hit that, that isn't, um, I, I think we hit all, all my main interests. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Uh, Eric Zimmer's podcast is the one you feed. He also runs the spiritual habits program and does some one-on-one -on -one coaching. You can learn more about him at his website, oneufeed.net. And, um, yeah, just a, a heartfelt thanks for your vulnerability for opening up. Um, I think this is going to be a favorite episode for a lot of people and for good reason. Thanks guys. It was great to talk with you again, Brad and Steve. It was a real pleasure to get to know you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the growth equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.